Have you ever been an outsider? Um, uh, ever, ever not just been an outsider, but even an outsider among those that you thought you should be an insider? It's a, it's a tough pill to swallow. We've, we've, I assume, all experienced that on some level or not. Uh, in, in seventh grade, I was kind of caught between two peer groups. The guy I thought of as my best friend at the time, Ganesh, uh, was a popular preppy kid. And most of my other friends, though, existed in this slightly more academic, more thoughtful group of mostly guys. Um, It wasn't the lowest slot on the middle school caste system, but it definitely wasn't the cool kids. And I really wanted to be in with those cool kids. And sometimes my, my friendship with Ganesh opened that door a bit. And then it, I would always come face to face with a reality where that, that door was just kind of slammed shut. Like, you know, you're, you're not welcome here. Sometimes it was a little bit more hostile. Sometimes it was a little bit more passive aggressive. And it could be humiliating at times and, and often humbling. And I felt trapped between these two worlds. The preppy kids should accept me, right? I'm no different. I'm no worse than they are. We bleed the same blood. It's all red. I deserve the privileges of their clique as much as anyone. They had no exclusive right to it, but, but they didn't accept me. I mean, they had to on some level. We occupied the same spaces, right? They couldn't get rid of me. We had the same classes together. We shared the same hallways, the same restrooms, and I couldn't get rid of them. But I didn't belong among them. And at times that was peaceful, and at times that was hostile. Of course, Jesus' life, more than mine, reflected this sort of tension. Jesus wasn't just an outcast, though. He was an outlaw. In Luke 22, verses 47 through 53, Jesus finds himself outside the protection of the law as both Jewish and Roman authorities conspire to have him arrested. Let's turn there, if you will. We're, we're in this, a study on the book of Luke. We are getting close to the end. We will finish up just after the turn of January. If you have one of Gateway's Bibles, uh, chapter 22 will be on page 573. Otherwise, turn, click, swipe, tap, or do what you do to get there, and we're going to look at a very short passage. Looking down at verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. Leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. So again, here in these these verses, Jesus finds himself outside the protection of the law for the first time. 
And the path that Jesus takes in these verses reminds us that the Christian life, the life that would follow Jesus, must be the life of an outlaw. And he shows those who would be his followers what that looks like in his response to betrayal, his response to power, and his response to evil. So that's my outline. So first we see Jesus' response to betrayal. And the passage begins while he was still speaking. The events of this section of Luke's biography of Jesus' life happened at a rapid pace and, and sort of one on top of another. And you'll notice that unlike earlier in this series, I, I generally took some very long passages of Scripture. But as we come toward the end of Luke's Gospel, we're generally going to have some shorter passages of Scripture that we're going to pick apart because things are really moving at a a rapid pace. And this one comes right on the heels of Jesus' prayer and his encouragement and teaching on the Mount of Olives, which we looked at two weeks ago. And I know we're we're behind on getting the sermons online. Um, We'll get those fixed. So if you miss something, you can catch up. And suddenly, as Jesus is speaking, a crowd's upon him, and it's led by none other than Judas, who Jesus had predicted at dinner earlier that night would betray him. And Judas goes in to kiss Jesus. And the kiss was a sign of friendship and intimacy, of closeness. We don't do that in our culture. Sometimes the Europeans and stuff, they still have this idea. Um, Is that mic still on? you check this mic? Okay, okay. It just seems a little, bring me down just a little bit. Luke, Luke doesn't tell us, but the other biographies of, Judas indica- uh, of Jesus indicate that Judas had told the authorities that he'd lead them to Jesus secretly and give him a kiss so that they knew which one Jesus was. After all, this was the days before the 24-hour news cycle and CNN and uh, let alone the Graham. So, It's not like most people had a working idea of what Jesus looked like. But the very idea of of Judas using this intimate gesture to hand Jesus over to death would have struck the early readers as a particularly painful and treacherous act. It was not just a betrayal of the person, but it was a betrayal of deeply held values like friendship and, and loyalty and truth and brotherhood. The word for kiss in Greek could also mean love. And it often expressed the care and compassion that was due to those of our in-group, like our family or our tribe or our nation. And I, I suspect that Judas's actions were a bit like a U.S. Marine betraying his platoon by using an American flag to signal the enemies, or a married man pawning his wedding ring to buy a gift for his mistress. Judas was an intimate of Jesus. He was one of Jesus' closest followers. He walked and talked with Jesus. He did ministry in Jesus' name. 
Jesus, without a doubt, devoted an enormous part of his time and energy with Judas. It might be fairly said that there were few human beings on earth who were closer to Jesus of Nazareth than Judas Iscariot. But this was the man who betrayed him. And Jesus calls him out on it even before he can do it. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And in this rhetorical question, Jesus reminds Judas and us of the stakes involved. Jesus was not just a teacher. He was not just rabbi. He was the Son of Man. And it's been a few weeks, maybe a, maybe a few months, uh, since we've talked about this title, Son of Man, and, and what it means. So it's worth mentioning again. The title, Son of Man, I think points two different ways, I'd argue. First, it points to the fact that Jesus is sort of the preeminent human being. In many Semitic languages, a son of man is a way of saying human being. I'm just a son of Adam. I'm just a son of man. I'm only human. But Jesus isn't a human being. He's the human being. He is the Son of Man. He is the representation of everything every one of us ought to have been. But secondly, it's a title that stemmed from Jewish prophecy about the coming Messiah, God's chosen, anointed king who would rule with righteousness. Yet, this Messiah is himself described in divine terms. And so Jesus is that divine king. And so this divine king who is the representation of everything that every man ought to have been is now suddenly an outlaw. And the message for those who would follow Jesus is this. We must be prepared to face betrayal from the world. If the world betrayed Jesus, how much more will it betray us who are his followers? Of course, betrayal involves those we thought to be close, those we thought to be loyal. Judas was a follower of Jesus. And it's striking to me how often we hear about or see people losing their faith in the face of betrayal. Whether that betrayal came from a spouse or whether that betrayal came from a pastor or a family member or or some other figure, it's as if betrayal is something strange or unexpected so that the existence of the betrayal nullifies the system that the betrayer came from. And, And from a human vantage point, that seems understandable, But that's not how Jesus responds. Jesus does not abandon the father because Judas betrays him. And neither should we. 
Judas reminds us that in this life, there will be false professors of the faith. There will be false professors of the faith, and those false professors will injure us. They will insult us. And in many times and places, they may even cause us to die. But the existence of betrayers does not give evidence against the benevolence of God. In fact, it may be just the opposite. God is still there. He is good. But the one who wishes to follow Jesus will very likely be betrayed. I wonder if, in face of so many stories we hear of those who have been betrayed and so they have left their faith, I wonder if it is unfortunately the reality that we have not proclaimed and shared the full counsel of God. But maybe we have taught and preached a shallow gospel that involves no suffering. A shallow gospel that tells us that everything will be well and good with us. A shallow gospel that tells us that following Jesus is the cure for all of your worldly problems. But that is not Jesus' response. But there's also good news in this for those who us those of us who have been betrayed. If you have been betrayed, Jesus understands. Jesus sympathizes with your plight. For everyone who has been abused by a member of the clergy, for everyone who has been spurned by a spouse, for every middle schooler who has suddenly found himself out of favor from the in crowd, for everyone and anyone who has felt betrayed, know that there is a Savior. There is a, a King who before you faced a betrayal far beyond anything you could imagine. Though the universe was created through his hand, though he was above all of them, though his love had brought him to this point, though he'd never wronged any of them, still one of his closest Followers turn his back on him. Jesus sympathizes with the betrayed because he was betrayed like none other. And those who have been betrayed can find trust and hope in him. The second episode in this account reflects Jesus' response to power. And here the, the account turns its attention away from the one apostle, Judas, who betrayed Jesus, to the other 11 who remained with Jesus. And although they don't reject Jesus as a person, the 11, in fact, do reject Jesus in terms of his mission and his heart. The text says, and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. A fact that Luke does not record, but 
the Apostle John records in his biography of Jesus is that the Apostle who struck the servant was none other than Peter. I think Luke doesn't mention it because it doesn't serve his purpose. By keeping the apostle nameless, by not mentioning Peter by name, there's maybe a sense that we, the readers, can find ourselves in this anonymous character. We've come all this way with Jesus in Luke's gospel. We've seen his character. We've seen Jesus' good deeds. And it just might be that we, we sympathize with this anonymous apostle's desire to fight back against a gross injustice. After all, Luke says they, they could read the scene. They knew what was about to happen. Here's a, a mob, an armed mob, that's come to take Jesus away. And so it was something of a now or never moment from their perspective. And they asked Jesus a question, should we strike? But they aren't really looking for an answer, and one of them acts with swift vengeance. Whatever bravery was exhibited by this disciple, there is no doubt, no doubt that it was coupled with an extraordinary level of foolishness. Eleven men, armed with apparently just two swords, were not likely to put up much of a resistance against the temple guards and Roman soldiers. And even if they escaped that scene, it's unthinkable that when morning light dawned, that they would have escaped what the world would then bring upon their little brigade. But on the other hand, perhaps the disciple thought that now, now the kingdom would come. Now King Jesus will lead us to victory. Now with the Messiah on our side, they will be triumphant. But Jesus says, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And so Jesus rejects the sword. And that's an interesting posture for a king, isn't it? Because every other earthly king has arrived at his position by the sword. Every queen that has reigned has reigned at some point in the past because the sword brought them to that point. But not so with Jesus. Now the sword in, in first century uh, Israel could have been used for personal protection. In that vein, it was not uncommon. It was a, a bit like the ancient handgun. It's probably why Peter had one. If you're traveling between cities where there's no police force, no soldiers, no guards, you needed a way to protect yourself from brigands and true outlaws. On the other hand, the sword could also be used by soldiers to enforce the state's prerogative. And so the sword could be used symbolically of the power of the state up to and including decisions regarding death and life. In short, the sword was the way the world enforced its prerogatives, whether personally or politically. It was a symbol of power. And with it all on the line, seemingly all on the line, Jesus rejected the idea of force as a means of accomplishing his aims, not just for his own hand, but also for the hand of his followers. 
Instead, Jesus reaches out and shows mercy on his enemy. He heals the servant's ear. And so Jesus is saying to those who would follow him that though it is an outlaw's path, it is a path of mercy rather than power, rather than force. For us who are followers of Jesus, it's a reminder that our battle is a battle of ideas. It's a battle of hearts and minds, a battle ultimately won by the word of God preached and proclaimed. It doesn't necessarily mean that Christians should be pacifists, but it does mean that those who, it does mean that we don't promote the Christian faith, the Christian message, and we don't defend the Christian message with the weapons of warfare. We do not use conscription or coercion. In fact, to do so is decidedly un-Christian, un-Christ-like. Instead, Christians are called to do good. Even to those who oppose us and hate us, Jesus was not opposed to power. But notice he uses his power, which is far greater than the sword, to mercifully heal. The world is full of powerful figures who would use their power to promote their own agenda and their own interests or the interests of their crowd, their tribe, their family, their political party, their ethnic identity. But the world is bereft of powerful figures who use their power to heal and to serve. But Christ came among us as one who serves. To those who are not followers of Jesus, let me tell you this good news. There's good news that this king, he he is the king of the universe, and he has all the power necessary to destroy the forces of Jerusalem and Rome. But he reaches out to heal his enemy. And that's good news because you are his enemy. And yet there is an offer of healing for you. You've done wrong. Objectively, I believe you know that. But beyond that, you've, you've done wrong in, in ways you don't know, in ways you couldn't imagine. We all have. In ways that you've long since forgotten about. In ways you couldn't count. And in doing so, you've offended the God who made you. And he, of course, is powerful enough to do something about it, and he is good enough to desire justice. But he's also merciful enough to seek you and to heal you. And so he came, and he dwelt among us in the person of Jesus, so that he, Jesus, who who never did wrong, who was never a sinner, who could bear the penalty for sin, of sinners. 
Rather than use his power to destroy, Jesus chose to use his power to mercifully heal and save. And so he went to the cross to die the death that I deserve, to die the death that sinners deserve. And yet death did not hold him. It could not hold him. And he was raised to life again, ascended to heaven, and offers healing and forgiveness to all his enemies if they would place their trust in him. The good news for those who, won't, who do not follow Jesus this morning is that you are an enemy, but the king is merciful and he heals his enemies. And that is good news. For we were all once enemies of God. In the final scene, Jesus takes center stage fully as he confronts those who have conspired against him, and we see his response to evil. In verse 52, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. The charge here that Jesus makes is this. They are treating him like they would a robber, And actually, the term for robber here, the Greek word here, could refer to a number of different types of criminals, but generally a dangerous one, one who would be on the run, one who would be in hiding, not somebody who was in the city out in the open. It's funny, in the the ancient world, the city was thought of as a place of safety and security and peace because there was protection there. There was people there. There was government there. More like it was outside the city. Think of the Old West, how things were kind of chaotic. That, that was more the idea of the countryside, the suburbs, dangerous places. They are dangerous, whether you know it or not. Um, that's where an outlaw would go to hide, where there weren't people. So that's, Jesus is saying that you know, that's the kind of criminal that's on the lamb that you might need to capture at night and under the cover of darkness and with a covert operation with armed forces. That type of criminal might hide out in the mountains or trying to escape capture. But Jesus was hardly such a threat. Not only is he apparently unarmed, and not only is he willing to heal those people who cause him harm, There's this little fact that Jesus has not exactly been hiding from the law. Day in and day out, he has been teaching in the most public of public places in Jerusalem. During the Passover celebration, one of the most important holy times in the Jewish nation, when Jerusalem was flooded with hundreds of thousands of pilgrims. He was pretty public. He was pretty easy to access. He was pretty easy to find. And by making this point, Jesus is demonstrating that his enemies are cowards. Jesus was an easy target. If they wanted him, they could have had him at any point. 
But they do it this way because they are afraid of the people who at this point still have at least a significantly positive view of Jesus and his ministry. Essentially, these leaders are scared. They're leaders by title and they're leaders by position, but in this matter, they aren't leading. Good leaders do not do what is popular necessarily. They do what is right. Yet these leaders have boxed themselves in. If they are correct that Jesus is a blasphemer and a false prophet, then they are failures because they didn't arrest Jesus publicly and make their case. On the other hand, if they are wrong about Jesus, then they have committed the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world. And we know, in fact, that it is the greatest miscarriage of justice in human history. And yet, Jesus concedes all this evil. He says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus says this, this situation, this set of circumstances, being betrayed, being surrounded by a mob of Jewish forces and Roman forces, is your hour, which means that in this moment, the power to act belongs to his opponents. The power to act belongs to his opponents. It's their move. It's their call. And that's a bit of a stunning statement because we've just seen that Jesus is the one who can heal a man. By all accounts, if Jesus wanted this to be his hour, He could make it so, but he doesn't. Second, this circumstance, Jesus says, is the power of darkness, which is to say it's the outworking of evil. Evil is taking over and having its way in this moment. Put together, that means that the Jewish and Roman authorities here are partnered in evil. And Jesus' shocking concession in this moment is to allow evil to have its way with him. And the message for Jesus' followers is that victory will come through persecution. Victory will come through the evil of persecution. Now that's a strange message. But it's a consistent theme. And while Jesus' closest followers might not have understood this before Jesus died and and was resurrected, but they certainly got it after he was. In the companion volume to Luke, if if you go over two books, so after Luke comes John, and then the next book after John is the book of Acts, it was also written by Luke. It's part two. It talks about all the things that Jesus did through his followers after he ascended to heaven. 
we'll see the example of Jesus' followers confronting evil head on. And you know what they never do? They never again take up the sword. They never call down fire from heaven. They never work the political system to tear down their opponents. In each and every case, Jesus' followers humbly submit to the evil of persecution. Every time. You may recall the events that Luke recorded in Acts chapter 5. There the Jewish authorities put the apostles in prison for preaching about Jesus. But during the night, an angel of the Lord comes and opens the prison gates and tells them, go preach some more. Doesn't tell them, the angel doesn't tell them to run away, doesn't tell them to hide. The angel says, go out in public and preach some more. So they go and they preach some more. In the morning, they find that they're gone, and the authorities are like, where are they? They find them, and they don't resist. They allow themselves to be arrested again and be taken right back before the authorities. And they're beaten by the Jewish council flogged. And Luke tells us, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. An angel let them out of prison, but did God open the doors to remove them from all harm? No. And did they seek to avoid the harm? No. But they believed that victory would come through persecution. Those who have professed the name of Jesus Christ have not always heeded this message. I can't speak to their souls, but history is rife with examples of those who called themselves Christian, who fought, to avoid persecution, fought to maintain power, even kill to avoid any harm coming to them for bearing the name of Jesus. I don't know their hearts. I don't profess to know how they stand before Jesus or whether they will stand with us in eternal glory. Whether they are true followers or false followers, I don't know. And Christians, Christians still sin. We don't gather here on on Sundays because we have been saved and we are sinless and we are perfect. Christians are those who gather because we know we are sinners and we know we need a Savior. But there is something decidedly un-Christian about fighting persecution with the machinations of this world. It was not Jesus' example. And we are called to be his followers. And that's not just a message for super-Christians like the apostles or something like that. That's a a message for everyday Christians like you and me. Here's Paul writing to the Christians living in Thessalonica. You can read this in in his Thessalonian letters. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith, 
that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you, kept telling you. They were, Paul was telling them over and over again beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. I fear that in America we don't keep telling each other that we will suffer affliction. It's not just Paul. Here's Peter writing to scattered Christians. He, he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Christian, you are very likely called to suffer. You are very likely called to be persecuted. Very likely to be scorned. Now, we may think that's very unlikely in a place like America. My first instinct to say, was to say, to warn you, oh, but times are changing. And I don't think that's actually true. I think sometimes we have a romantic view of America, where religious freedom and tolerance have reigned. And those things have often reigned here more than other places, but they have never reigned here always and perfectly. And America, even before the present moment, has always praised a certain type of Christian. Every one or nearly every one of our American presidents has supposedly been a Christian of some type. But they were culturally acceptable Christians. Ask the Christian abolitionists. Ask those Christians who were promoting an end to the evils of the American chattel slavery system because they believed that we were made in the image of God and that it was abhorrent in the eyes of God what we were doing to other image bearers. Do you think even in the North that their message was always well received? It was not. In fact, when renowned Baptist preacher and pastor Charles Spurgeon thought to leave London for a preaching tour of the American South in order to help fund an orphanage his church was building, he was warned in no uncertain terms that his stance against slavery would get him killed there. Spurgeon had the choice to not go, but Christians living in the South did not so easily 
have the choice to leave. Less dramatically, there are street evangelists out there who are sharing the gospel of Jesus. And, and some of them are sharing Jesus Christ boldly and publicly, and they're being harassed by the police and sometimes receiving other admittedly light punishments. Now, please don't hear me talking about everyone you see doing this on YouTube because there are some nuts out there who are intentionally breaking laws and spewing crazy doctrines and sometimes plain hate and almost seem to be intentionally inviting controversy. That's when Peter says, let none of you be suffer for being a meddler. That's not Christ-honoring. But if you suffer for being a Christian, glory in that. But there are some out there who are doing great work. There are some guys out there who know the law and are very careful not to break the law and are teaching the pure gospel with love and compassion, and yet they're still shut down by authorities or imprisoned briefly for simply telling people about Jesus. You might be uncomfortable with their methods because it's culturally out of the norm and makes you feel awkward or embarrassed. But maybe the words of Dwight Moody might ring in our ears. He was the famous evangelist Moody was once criticized for his methods of evangelism. And upon asking the critic how she did evangelism, instead, the woman, the woman replied, she didn't. And Moody famously replied, well, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. Christian, if we are to follow Jesus, then we must follow him into persecution. It happens every day in this world. And it has happened in this country for 400 years. It just hasn't always looked the way it looks in the book of Acts or in Saudi Arabia, or in Singapore, or in Tibet. I don't know how Jesus will lead you. I don't know where Jesus will take you or where he will take gateway. But I do know that when we come to that moment where we face the evil of persecution, we can look at our Savior who went before us and say to our persecutor, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And then we can rejoice to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. We can smile through a pained grimace because we know that even as Jesus went to the cross, he rose victoriously over persecution and over sin and over death. And so too, we who follow him into persecution will be raised victorious and ushered into eternal life with our Lord. This is our great hope. So Jesus tells us, through his actions and his words here, that the Christian life is the life of an outlaw. We see it in how he responds to betrayal, how he responds to power, and how he responds to the evil of persecution. The question for us is, would we follow? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he is the great example, the author, 
perfecter of our faith. We thank you that he went through persecution, that he forewent the use of power for his own sake, that he endured betrayal, that he might draw sinners to himself and so find salvation in his death and resurrection. Thank you for his gift. Thank you for his example. Thank you for the fact that we can have confidence when we face trials of all sorts of kinds because we know that he has gone before us and he has endured and he has been raised and he is victorious. So shall we be. And we pray for those who have not yet come to follow Jesus that they would find in his example something attractive, something good, something right, and something pure, and they would fall at his feet and worship him in spirit and truth and repent of their sins and trust in him for their salvation. We thank you and ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.